This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Film Show. It is Tuesday, June 6th, 2023. On today's episode of the show, we are going to talk about the latest film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film writer and box office analyst, Ryan Scott. Hey, hey everyone. How's it going? All right, Ryan, welcome to the first episode of the newly rebranded The Slash Film Show, which is basically just going to be the same type of thing that, that listeners have you know, been listening to for years, uh, us talking about movie news and diving into the features and stuff that we have at SlashFilm.com. So let's just get right into it. Uh, no pomp and circumstance here. Captain America 4, Ryan, has now received a new title. This, this uh, uh, movie that is supposed to be coming out next year from Marvel Studios was originally uh, titled Captain America New World Order, and that title has now been changed to Captain America Brave New World. Um, I'm not entirely certain. I don't think Marvel has like explicitly said why they changed the title, but there was a pretty significant backlash in some corners uh, about the original title because the phrase New World Order has sort of become um, co-opted by anti-Semitic uh, right-wing extremists and con- conspiracy theorists and has become sort of a dog whistle term that uh, rubs a lot of people the wrong way, understandably. So uh, Marvel's like, you know what, let's just uh, change that title to, um, as Jeremy wrote in our article about it, something that's a little bit more optimistic. Um, It also doubles as, you know, commentary on like the future of the Captain America character. It's a brave new world. We have a, a new Captain America in the movies now. So it makes a lot of sense, I think, that the change as a title. Do you have any thoughts about uh, any of this, Ryan? Uh, I think that like both titles are generic enough without knowing the plot that it's fine. I think it's better to get ahead of it now. I think if there was any chance at any backlash over a title that didn't seem to have a tremendous amount of meaning there's no point in keeping it. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't, it's not like civil war where that's associated with an incredibly iconic storyline from the comics. So it's easier to change it. And so I I just don't see any reason. Like if that was the reason it, I don't think it changes anything. I mean, I was more interested in seeing that picture of Harrison Ford actually smiling on the set of a Marvel movie uh, (laughs) with, with Anthony Mackie. I, you know, so that, that to me was more like, all right, 
you know? Yeah. Yeah. And we've embedded that photo in the article as well. Um, so if, if people want to check that out, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, this is compu like complete speculation on my part, but like the idea of new world order being the title has this sort of conspiratorial tone that the Captain America movies have, you know, they have dealt in government conspiracies and, and political conspiracies explicitly before. So my thought would be, you know, the, the organization that, uh, that Falcon is, or now the former Falcon and now Captain America is going up against might be called new world world order or like the, the, um, that idea being tied into the actual narrative story that they're telling makes sense to me. But like, yeah, as a, you know, uh, divorced from the context of what is actually in the movie, just like seeing it, you know, slapped on posters and stuff. I can, I can totally understand why they wanted to switch that up and go with something else. So, yeah. Um, well, cause I've heard, I mean, obviously you have, um, you know, this is the first time you've got your new Captain America, but then you've got the leader in there who was teased way back in the Incredible Hulk. But then the other there's a rumor I've heard because like everyone keeps talking about, man, nobody's addressing this like eternal popping out of the ocean that's been there for like seven movies now. Yeah. Um, and apparently I again, this is not I this is not confirmed, but I've heard that this movie will actually pretty heavily address that. Like, okay. like that, that might actually be like a huge point of this movie. So I, I don't know. That's, I, I can do that is just, I have heard hearsay at this point, but yeah, you know, that's so fascinating. I, I, I kind of, part of me would love for a movie, any movie, please, for the love of God, somebody just address this, you know, thing that has been sitting out there and, and the world has just moved on without mentioning at, at all. But also there's another part of me, Ryan, like the more chaotic part that just wants it to continue to exist out there and nobody to ever comment on you know comment on it for, throughout the entire rest of the the whole MCU run so um yeah. you know it I, feels who knows it feels very comic booky to me in the sense that like cuz i've read mainstream comics for most of my life and like you know you'll have like um maybe the avengers comic is like at that time is dealing with some like intense cataclysmic thing and then you have like the punisher comic which is just like you know, him dealing with some thugs in New York. And it's like, yeah. cool, these guys are two blocks from each other and they're not talking about like the same, you know? <laughs> so like it, it does in some way feel comic booky in that sense of like, yeah, yeah. you know, but, uh, well, but no, these are movies. They will address them at the, at the that uh, they will address that at some point. It would be interesting to me if it's addressed in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of comic booky stuff, Ryan, let's talk a little bit about Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. Um, before we get into how the movie performed at the box office, what did you think about the film itself? Um, so I don't know. I don't know if I'm in the minority or the, but I, I, I loved it. First off, I'll say it's, it's phenomenal, but, um, but I'd liked into the Spider-Verse more, but I, but I still thought across the Spider-Verse was excellent. Is there a reason that you preferred the first one? Because I'm in the same boat and I have a, a specific reason why I preferred the first one um, overall. But I'm curious if you have like one thing that that really, you know, you've zeroed in on as as being as putting the first one above the second. Um, I think there was a I mean, I think who knows how it's going to change. Well, it, OK, it's twofold. I think the first one was the charm of getting to know Miles and the universe and sort of like the love letter to the character of Spider-Man, no matter what shape or form that takes. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but then, yeah, just the more it was, it was the completeness of it and the sort of groundbreaking, like shocking nature of it. Like, cause it was so new, sort of like in the way that like the first guardians of the galaxy was, you know, like just so 
so new that like even though i love guardians of the galaxy 3 it can't really recapture that same like newness yeah um and then there is the element that and this has been talked about a lot i even wrote a piece for it. it's not a spoiler the filmmakers talked about this this is this is uh, across the spider-verse is a part one of a two-part thing so mm-hmm. it is it does not finish a story it is it is leaving you off in a place uh yeah. so there's that so i don't know who knows maybe by the time beyond the spider-verse comes out i'll feel differently but as it stands you know, I feel this way about it, but awesome. Yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you in that same exact, uh, headspace. I, I, I really, really appreciated what across the Spider-Verse, uh, did because it's so ambitious and like, I kind of can't believe that they were able to pull it off. And I, I certainly want to like, um, support and reward things for taking such bold, daring, uh, stylistic risks. Um, but, that that sort of lack of completeness did leave me feeling like, well, I can't fully, it doesn't feel right to fully judge this thing without knowing, you know, how, how the, the story concludes, um, which is. Yeah, because like, like it would paint like if Avengers Infinity War, like if, if, if Avengers Endgame had sucked somehow, we would all look at Avengers Infinity War differently. Yeah, so like, who knows? Right. Like, yeah, like, it, but, but, you know, as it stands also, and I wrote a piece about this, it has the best joke in any movie I've seen in a, in this year. It is the, there's two jokes competing for that right now. And there's, <laughs> there's, there's a joke in this movie that just leveled me, but only because it's so sincere. But then there's also one, no, it hasn't come out yet, but there's the blackening is coming out. And there is a joke in the blackening that is so quick, but it is, just so yeah keep an eye out for, for <laughs> amazing yeah i'm looking forward to that and yeah there's so many uh I, I mean obviously like a lot of praise is being heaped on across the spider-verse for its visuals but it's also um you know it, it's emotional the, the the character of the spot is like really well realized i thought and and like the way yep. that um you know it brings it back to and connects with the the events of the first film I thought was really smartly done um there's so many things to, to like about that movie so uh it appears that um I don't know the world at large, or at least uh, the the U.S. Um, audiences are are appreciating what this movie is doing because it's performed pretty well at the box office, right? Tell me about that. Yeah. So yesterday, when I wrote about it, uh, was going off the estimates. The estimates ended up being very close. So going over the finals for the weekend here, uh, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse made a hundred and twenty point six million dollars domestically. Now that's very good for a superhero movie. Let's be very clear. Uh, made $88.1 million internationally and still has a bunch of key, ter- ter- key territories to open in, such as like Japan and South Korea. So off to a phenomenal start, a little over $200 million worldwide. But let us not forget that the original opened to, I believe it was $35 million, which was, again, it had a $90 million budget, made $375 million worldwide. Outstanding finish for Sony. Great for an animated film. But the the, the jump from sequel from installment to sequel here mm-hmm. was like 3.5 times as much or something it was almost like a four times multiplier from that has almost almost unheard of the only comp i could personally find and I, you know i sort of live and breathe this stuff was the the batman begins to dark night jump so this is that level of like audience like just building your audience that much bigger it mm-hmm. is crazy So it speaks volumes about how many people have discovered into the Spider-Verse in that handful of years since it came out. Um, I think that was a movie that some people slept on theatrically, but then found later and were like, holy crap, this is great. You know, so I think it speaks 
absolute orders of magnitude about how how much people have loved have found and loved that movie so and then the other thing you're benefiting from here is as we said this movie ends on a cliffhanger so you're gonna have more people again you had like infinity war made a boatload of money but then endgame made every bit of money available uh, across the planet so like i think that there's a chance now that because beyond the spider-verse is coming out in i think nine months you know, you have a chance for Sony to like really capitalize here. So I was going to um, ask you about that, Ryan, because like you, know, you and I um, obviously knew that and you, you wrote that article. And so like listeners of the show and readers of Slash Film knew that Across the Spider-Verse is part one of a two part thing. But I've seen so many tweets and, and heard anecdotally from people that there were like loud groans in the theater um, when that sort of to be, to be continued thing came up at the very end of the film. So I'm wondering if you think that... Um, the goodwill that the f- this franchise now has built after that first film that has translated into such higher numbers for the the opening of the second film might actually be um, not let out entirely, but like might level out in a way uh, because some people are just like, oh, another half movie in a summer that's going to be full of half movies, you know, with, with Fast X and you've got Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 as well. Um, so I, I'm wondering if you think that there's going to be any downside to the fact that, you know, most people, most people who who don't live and breathe this stuff and, and pay attention to the news probably didn't know that this was uh, Part 1. Um, I would wager that, like, anyone who's groaning right now is not going to they're not groaning to the point that they don't want to see how this wraps up. They're almost groaning for the right reasons, right? Like they're all, I, I'm sure that there's a bit of frustration, but they also want to know where this is going and how it wraps up. Yeah. So yeah, I, 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 that's one of those things that I suspect will impact, impact the box office very little. And let's be extremely clear. If Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse made half this, if it made like 60 million, let's say 60, 61 million, it would still be, Oh my god! It almost doubled the original's box office. That's great. Yeah. So like, even if the next one slips a lot, I'm you know this is just such a drastic overperformance that like you could do because there was a good example might be like Rise of the Planet of the Apes made pretty good money. I think somewhere between four and five hundred million worldwide. Uh, uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes made like almost eight hundred million worldwide. Like way overperformed. Mm-hmm. So then when War for the Planet of the Apes again made around like 500 million worldwide, it looked like a disappointment. But really, it's just because that middle installment overperformed so much that it, it so so we could be in one of those situations. But even if, even so, it would still be an absolute win. So who knows? Yeah. But I I would lean more toward like an Infinity War endgame thing than I would like a Dawn of the Planet of the Apes War for the Planet of the Apes thing. OK, yeah. And I'll, I'll put a link to the show notes for um for people to be able to read the article that you wrote about how this movie basically just pulled a dark night at the box office. So if people wanted to dig cool. into that a little bit further, they can find that there. Um, I wanted to mention something that I thought was just like an interesting thing that you don't really see happen too often for mainstream movies, which is that um, I think this was on Friday, the, the, the technical, uh, I guess officially the movie probably opened like Thursday afternoon, Thursday evening screenings, whatever Friday is like, you know, the quote unquote official opening day of the movie that night, uh, Phil Lord, who is one of the writers and producers of this movie went on Twitter and was addressing complaints about the sound design and, and some of the, the sound mix, um, for the, the, 
I guess specifically the beginning of this movie. And I, I was wondering if you experienced any of that when you saw the film yourself, Ryan, because I, my wife and I saw it in an, a local AMC theater and Gwen's opening monologue was incredibly difficult to hear for the first, I don't know, five or six minutes of the movie or something. It, you know, there's all those drums banging and like, you know, just a lot of stuff going on. And I was like, oh no, is the mix completely way off in this movie? Are we completely screwed here? And then like pretty soon it settled into a rhythm where we we were able to understand what the characters were saying, but it was, it was rough going there for a minute in the beginning. And I'm curious, like you tend to go to the draft house and like theaters that have nicer presentation. I was wondering if you experienced that at all. So actually, so I went to a, an early screen, I went to a press screening and it was at a very, uh, like a very modest regal cinema near me. Um, and so what's interesting is it, I had previously the week, the week before went and saw an early screening of the blackening at that same theater. And we actually had trouble with the sound on the blackening at that theater to the point where two or three of us went to the lobby to get the, the people handling the screening to be like, Hey, you got to fix the sound. We can't hear a damn thing. And so when, when across the Spider-Verse started, me and my girlfriend were sitting there and we're like, Oh, is this happening again? So we actually just thought it was like the theater having, and then it like fixed. So we're like, okay, the people fixed the sound. So we didn't attribute it to anything. But then I started seeing all these reports and I'm like, oh, apparently this was some odd artistic choice. Like, I don't, I still don't, <laughs> I still don't fully understand what the deal is here, honestly. But, uh, but yeah, I, I had it too, but I had a bit of an odd experience with it just because I attributed it to, okay, this is this theater having trouble not you know, not the movie itself. So, um, yeah, that's yeah. part for the course for me based on my experience at that theater. But so Phil Lord, uh, posted a picture of these, um, f essentially little flyers that he w has put a bunch of rubber bands around and it was like handing out to different theaters and stuff, um, to projectionists and, and people actually running the, the projections of the movies. And the, the sticker says I played Spider-Verse at full volume because I'm awesome. And then there's the number seven on it. And he was talking on Twitter about how he was like basically saying, if you experience this, go to the manager of the theater and recommend that they play this movie at a seven, which is like on the, um, the scale of volume, how theaters uh, mix and, and present their stuff. Um, a seven is where it was supposed to, that, that's the set standard on the processor that they're, they're supposed to be using for the sound stuff. And in my article about why movie dialogue has gotten so much more difficult to understand from a year or two ago at this point, um, that was a big thing. Like the landmark theater chain does not play movies above 5.5 on their processor when it's supposed to be seven. And Phil Lord is saying like, we mix this for a seven. We mix this for what it's supposed to be. But you guys in America, you know, if you're experiencing uh, any issues here, he's basically saying like, this is probably the theater's fault for not playing this at the level that it's supposed to be. And I just thought it was interesting that like a filmmaker was basically saying like, take this into your own hands, go out there and, you know, ask the, ask the manager yourself for them to do the right thing essentially. Um, which is just not something that, that you see happen very often. So, um, I just thought it was worth noting on, uh, worth noting here and, and seeing what your experience was there. So, um, do you have any, any, like, I guess, final thoughts on, on this part before we move on from this, Ryan? We were actually having, I guess it sort of ties in because we were just having a bit of a debate in the old Slash Film Slack about, you know, because a lot of theaters now, there's been a lot of complaints about from people that pay attention like us that like, you know, for projection quality or 
you know, overall, like, you know, the, the screen experience, like the actual experience of the film. But there's been a lot of focus on, like you mentioned, the Alamo Drafthouse model of like more dining, alcohol experiences, things like that. So we were actually having a debate over like, you know, what, you know, what, what's worth, what's going to get people back to theaters, what matters. And I think was, you know, so I don't know that I think it's both. I think that theaters definitely need to pay more attention to this stuff, but I also think there's a lot of evidence that like, yeah, if you do have like good food at your theater and you can offer a more full experience, even if it's more money, people will come. So there's like an interesting thing right now where exhibition is sort of changing to have to like, you got to do more than just offer a movie and, you know, but, but this is also a problem. Like, so it's like, you need to address two things at once. And that, that complicates matters because theaters don't have a lot of money right now. So, yeah, that's true. Um, but still like, yeah, that, you know, it seems so simple to just say like, you know, put, run your, your, uh, projects at the set standard that has been established and like, you know, uh, care about the visual presentation of what you're doing. And that, you know, before adding all this other stuff on, like, get the, the fundamentals right. And like, maybe that will help improve things a little bit, but uh, I don't know. It, maybe there are reasons that are, are outside of my understanding why that is uh, easier said than done. Um, I'm not pretending to be an expert on like theatrical presentation and exhibition and all that, but um, it just, it seems from the outside looking in like such a simple thing to, to, you know, spend what little resources they do have on that stuff first before they try to do anything flashy. But um I don't know if there's anybody out there actually who knows a lot about this subject or if you work in the exhibition space and if you work for an AMC or something, um, I would love for you guys to, to write in and let us know like what you think about this, because uh, it's something that we've been wondering about for years at this point. Like why, why don't theater change just uh, put their resources in places that from the outside looking in, it seems like the most obvious ways to sort of make the theatrical experience better. So email us at bpearson at slash film.com. If you have uh, any insight into that, I would love to hear it. Um, All right, let's take a quick break and then we'll be right back. All right, Ryan. So uh, over, I guess this has been in the past few days now, uh, the Directors Guild of America has reached a tentative agreement with the uh, AMPTP, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which is a body that represents the major studios, Disney, Netflix, Warner Brothers Discovery, etc. Um, the Writers Guild of America has been on strike since I think it's May 2nd was the official date that they stopped working. And uh, the, you know, th- there's been a lot of talk about what might happen this summer because both the Directors Guild of America and the uh, SAG-AFTRA, the, the Actors Guild, um, are coming up for negotiations with the AMPTP. And there was talk that maybe we could get like a a triple layer strike here all going on at the same time, which would like completely cripple Hollywood and like, you know, take its legs out from underneath it. And like, that would be an unprecedented uh, work stoppage and nobody would know what the heck is going on. So uh, the latest news that we have is that uh, the, the studios basically met up with the writers and, and, uh, they're so far away on on what they you know on on trying to reach a compromise or reach an agreement that the studio said okay we're not going to deal with the writers anymore we're just going to like put them on ice and focus all of our attention on the directors guild because in 2007 2008 when the previous WGA strike happened the same type of thing happened where they didn't deal with the writers for a little while. They dealt with the DGA, struck a deal with them, 
And then the studios can now say, look, we made a deal with this other guild. You guys now, the writers, are just being unreasonable here. It, it, we've proven that you know we're not unreasonable. We can make um, agreements and, and, and uh, reach compromises with reasonable people, and you guys are now being unreasonable. Um, so there's been a lot of talk about like, oh, no, does the fact that the uh, the DGA has has struck a deal, a, a temporary deal with the uh, with the producers. Does that mean that? What does that mean for the writer strike? Um, and basically, I think everybody is like seeing through the game plan this time around. Whereas I think it, it the DGA deal did actually lead to the writer strike being cut short or, uh, or or coming to an end last time around. I think the WG, WGA folks are going to be standing much more stronger, I guess, much stronger than they were uh, 15 years ago. And they they know that, like, basically this was going to happen. This is part of the studio playbook. Um, so I think everybody's just a little bit more savvy this time around. And um, Hannah Shaw Williams wrote a great piece called Why a Director's Guild Deal Won't End Hollywood's Writer's Strike This Time uh, that I will link to in the show notes. But um, you, you've been following this stuff sort of, uh, you know, from at arm's length, Ryan. Do you have any any takes on this? Any thoughts on any of this stuff? Uh, I, I, I kind of tend to believe that, yeah, this time, because I think like, especially I talk about this in a minute, probably, but I was just at the ATX television festival here in Austin. Um, and actually the, the, the whole festival was sort of thrown for a bit of a loop because of the strike. Cause, cause like promoting shows is in some cases is considering like crossing the picket line. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the, but they ended up having a couple of panels. One was just about the strike and then another was uh all about ai which is an enormous part of the what the the writers are trying to fight against a little bit um and so yeah i just i i i think there's the 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 sense that i get is everyone is standing so firm right now that unless you know the directors guild came up with a deal that like addressed all of the concerns that the writers also had and my understanding is that it doesn't. It's not that it's a terrible deal, but it just doesn't quite solve their yeah. concerns. I get the sense that that's not going to end things. And given what's going on with SAG after right now, I'm led to believe that more of the industry is leaning towards no. We need to really address this. And you know, I just think I, I you know, you can't direct, you can't direct without actors and a script. So if two thirds of your bodies are striking, I don't know where that leaves you. Yeah, so the the SAG after um, part of this the, part of this equation is that the that union almost ninety eight percent of it, which is almost exactly the same percentage as the WGA uh, um, membership, voted to an, to approve a strike if you know if it actually comes down to that. Um, so that obviously happened with the WGA and and the the membership um, and, and the union itself actually you know, took that opportunity to go on strike, to, to fight for the things that they think that they need. Um, and now sag after is like following in their footsteps and, and basically like signaling to the world, like, Hey, you know, this is a serious thing. Like we're not, we're not just messing around here. Um, and I think it is notable, like, well, first of all, the DGA's deal is tentative. So it, it, they, I think they still have to send it out to actually have all of the members vote on it to like officially approve it before it goes in uh, to, to ratify it for it sort of becomes codified. Um, but the things that the DGA were asking for, you know, different residuals, um, wage increases, um, things of that sort are like slightly different that the, the, 
the professions of directing and then acting and writing are are different enough that yeah, like you said, it's not necessarily like a one size fits all thing here. Um, interestingly, they did say that AI has been a sticking point in the WGA uh, negotiations, but the um, this tentative deal with the DGA, uh, they basically got the studios to say that. Um, AI is, uh, let's see, the, the quote is a, a groundbreaking agreement confirming that AI is not a person and that generative AI cannot replace the duties performed by members uh, of the Directors Guild. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, on a practical level, I don't think anybody was anticipating artificial intelligence stepping in to direct a project. But as we've seen, studios are are seem to be very willing to say, hey, we actually want to use artificial intelligence to, you know, write screenplays or provide the, the basis for screenplays that, that then writers, you know, would would um, rewrite or whatever. Uh, and then in the big article that I wrote recently about um, how uh, the voice actors are feeling about AI, like obviously artificial intelligence there and like people being... Um, uh, having their voice replicated and used without their consent and all that. Like, I mean, there's so many issues there that like the writers and the actors uh, have solidarity on that the directors, it just doesn't really, there's not really that same crossover there. So, um, but I, I wanted to throw this to you, Ryan, because like, as you mentioned, you, you went to the ATX festival and you attended a panel that was like specifically about writing an AI. And I'm, I have not had a chance to read your article yet, but I'm curious what you learned there. Yeah. So it was very interesting. So, um, uh, basically, yeah, uh, it, it it was several people uh, that were there. And so let me go over real quick. The panel, uh, uh, an actor named Kevin Bigley, who starred on like a show Upload. Uh, and then there was a writer showrunner, uh, Elena Smith, who is best known as the creator of Dickinson. Uh, and then uh, there was a, a writer and executive producer, uh, Javier Grillo. Uh, I'm going to butcher the second part of his last name, Mark Zuach. Uh, it's got like Yeah, Mark Swatch, I think. Yeah, he, he worked Swatch, on yeah, Lost but- for a little bit. Lost, and then he Cowboy Bebop and uh, uh, Dark Crystal Age of Resistance are two of his other big credits uh, as of late. Mm-hmm. And then the other interesting part was there was a uh, Dr. Amelia uh, Javorski, who's from the Future of Life Institute. Uh, so they were all there, sort of discussing, you know, the, all this impact. And and really, what ended up happening is there was like this this conversation that emerged about like what does it look like if writers embrace AI because they more or less have to, right? Like you can't close Pandora's box. That's been a big thing that's been sort of discussed a lot. So. Uh, what really ended up happening is that like, from my view, Elena Smith and Javier sort of ended up on like two slightly different sides of it. Like, and again, this is me sort of interpreting like Elena was kind of had a more of a burn it down mentality. Um, whereas like Javier kind of had this, what I would view as more of like a semi-realistic approach of like, look, this is here. We got to try to embrace it. And mm-hmm. so um, it, there was just so much. It, it's hard to almost boil down. You and I were actually talking about this a little bit yesterday because um, <laughs> it was taking a little bit for me to get this piece done. But, um, uh, you know, and so like one of the things Alina said, they were, you know, they were talking about, OK, you know, how can you embrace this or whatever? Um, she said, there's no question right now that studios are trying to figure out if they can push, but push buttons and print out screenplays. And then she said they've always wished they could do that. Uh, you know, which was like sort of, she had a strong cynicism. Um, and then, you know, another thing she said was, uh, maybe they can in certain, certain instances, maybe you can make a James Bond or a Marvel movie. I don't know. Uh, there's going to give going to be a categorical distinction between what can be made by robots and what cannot. I guess I feel like it's all on us as creators and audience and community to seek out what is real. 
Um, mm-hmm. So that was like, you know, kind of a little bit of an idea of where, uh, you know, uh, she sort of st- uh, came down. One thing everyone agreed on is that like AI is essentially like a plagiarism machine, right? Like it doesn't create anything original as of yet. It's just remixing ideas. Right. Um, so that, that was a big thing. But then um, Javier had, had a bit of a, you know, he, he uh, said my favorite quote of the weekend, which was uh, AI is moving at the speed of capitalism. Uh, and then he also said the speed of light has nothing on the speed of capitalism, which I sort of appreciated. Mm-hmm. Um, but so he sort of was like, okay, this is happening, you know. Um, and then it, one of the things he said that I appreciate was AI is going to write. I don't like the implication that AI can write fast and the furious, but not succession. AI will write succession. So he has a more take that like, look, this is going to happen. And, um, you know. Uh, I said, we need to teach this technology to enable us to make better choices for us. Uh, it's only going to be as good as uh, who is feeding it. And so his whole thing is that like, okay, like, you know, w- the role of the person won't go away because it will need more things. But the idea is that like, okay, how do we as writers get ahead of it and show studios how to how we can use it rather than have the studios show us what they want us to do with it. Um, so that, that you know, that's kind of one of his big ideas. And um uh, yeah. So, you know, uh, the, 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 he, you know, punctuated all this saying by, we need to grab those tools and say, here's what I can do with it. Instead of the studios telling us, here's what we think you should be doing. And here's the shitty script that we came up with in AI. Can you rewrite yeah. it? Our immediate nightmare scenario is not robots are going to take over our jobs. Our immediate nightmare scenario is somebody is going to get an AI to write a crappy script and then they are going to make us rewrite it into a good script for less money. Um, yeah, you know, that was so there was a lot of talk like that and people sort of on different sides of, you know, how to sort of approach the problem. And, um, you know, it, it, I think the thing that I learned the most is that even within the community of people who are very much united right now, there are different um, stances on how to approach it. And yeah, it was very evident. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm I'm so curious about, you know, because I, I think the the conversation around AI, AI has shifted so dramatically in the past let's call it six months, like there, you know, it, it seemed to be um, uh, rising exponentially in terms of like what ChatGPT and all this stuff could do. And like the implications got really, really scary and like everything reached a fever pitch. And then, you know, there there were like New York Times articles that were basically saying like the, the creators of artificial intelligence, the godfather of AI and like people who, you know, helped develop this technology all these years ago are now saying like, this could lead to, to nuclear war. Like we need to really like seriously pump the brakes here. And like, you know, everybody who's developing stuff basically has like a moral obligation to stop. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but like has a moral obligation to stop, uh, you know, developing this stuff before it like gets out of hand. So I, I don't know like where the, um, you know, where all of that shakes out in terms of Hollywood stuff. Like obviously that person was right that the studio's would love to cut writers out of the equation altogether because, uh, you know, they've always wanted to to be able to just be like, hey, look, here's something that performed well. Let's do a slightly different tweak on that. Um, so I'm wondering, like, if there's going to be rules in place about and regulations about, like, uh, what can be fed into those systems. You're talking about, like, Javi's standpoint of, like, you know, it's all going to come down to what we're feeding them and what we're telling them. I wonder if there are going to be like restrictions in place on what can actually um, go into these systems because they've been called, you know, plagiarism machines and things like that, because they're just basically re 
there's they're um, remixing things that uh, other writers like real human writers have done so is the is the wga going to be be able to actually like make enough headway in their negotiations with the studios on okay we can use ai but in like a limited capacity where you can't feed it every screenplay that's ever been written um you know maybe only writers can use it when they you know um run into a case of writer's block or like can't quite get over this hump of how to how to bridge this story gap or something um i don't know there there are so many like big swirling issues around all this ryan do you have any like predictions about like how you think it it might go well one of the interesting things um is uh is um I, I, javier also talked about like okay so like um all, all of these, you know, so so what what doesn't exist right now is like these machines are pulling from all these different sources to make like he he used a joke like about like, hey, make this image of a boob, you know, and then like, you know, all the different pictures of boobs that looked at to make that picture of a boob. And like and the idea is that like but what he was saying, like the serious point that he was trying to make is why can't there just be some software that shows you everything that was used to generate this script, this image, whatever, and then you develop a royalty system around that. Um, oh, that's interesting. And that was it. And I did think that was interesting, but his whole point was like, of course they don't want to make that because like then you're sort of getting, but then another point that was made at the writer strike panel was that like, okay, the studio should be just as worried about AI because their intellectual property is at stake. People are going to be ripping their stuff off. So it's like this whole weird cycle of, you know, so I don't know. I just think ultimately it's in everyone's best interest to figure out a way to sort of develop royalties around this because again, it's not going to stop. I think yeah. that's the one thing everyone agreed on. But I really think it's just a matter of like figuring out how to sort of get a handle on that plagiarism machine and figure out a way to monetize it. Uh, but again, the only problem is then what what is one generated image if there's a thousand sources that are pulled? How do you even deal with that royalty system? And that's where things get extremely complicated. But I do think th that's what I'm landing on is that th there probably is going to have to be like a like a royalty system of some kind. Well, it sounds like we solved it, Ryan. You and I have solved it right here. This big, huge <laughs> national global issue that's uh, that's been, you know, really bothering people for a long time. I'm glad we uh, we came to this conclusion, and uh, I think everything's going to be a okay from here on out. So, uh, all right. <laughs> well, I think that's going to do it for today's episode of the show. I, I just wanted to mention I'm going to put a couple links in the show notes for people to check out. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to keep the link of Slash Films Top 100 Movies of All Time in there because, again, if you've not checked that out yet, it's a really great piece that has like contribution uh, contributions from a ton of different people on, on the slash film staff and i would encourage you all to dive into that and then uh not too long ago i had a chance to interview uh, rob savage and sophie thatcher who are the director and star respectively of the boogeyman which i think came out in theaters last weekend so uh if you um happened to see that movie and, and enjoyed it uh, i think there's some interesting stuff in there with both of them um, that I, I just wanted to point the, that in your direction in case uh, that happened to slip through the cracks. So um, yeah, and then uh, I'm going to link to Ryan's uh, um, ATX piece about screenwriters and, and AI, which again, like dig into that actual article for all the quotes and stuff to, to really like uh, get the full picture on what's going on and sort of the snapshot in time of, of where we are in the AI conversation right now, because it's really interesting stuff. So um, that is going to do it for today's episode of the show. Uh, you can find more about the stories that we mentioned on today's show 
at SlashFilm.com. The Slash Film Show is published two times a week, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TVs, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on SlashFilm.com. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter, send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at SlashFilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you later on.